Hi, I'm Dr. Doran Schneider. I'm a general internist at Abington Health right outside of Philadelphia. And today we're going to talk about a landmark trial called the DCCT trial. And here to discuss this landmark trial with me is Dr. Jack Leahy. Uh, Doran, hi. Uh, I'm Jack Leahy. And just to introduce myself, I'm uh, the head of endocrine here at the University of Vermont in uh, Burlington, Vermont. Fabulous. Well, thank you for spending a few minutes with us here today, Dr. Leahy. Um, we wanted to uh, really uh, reflect on the history of the DCCT, uh, given that we're coming up on really 30 years of achievement, uh, and uh, that reflects both the DCCT and then the continuation study called the EDICT study. So just to give everyone a foundation about what these trials are, what the trial is and, and uh, the EDICT study is, um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, really what was the construct of the DCCT? So, so this was a trial that was designed to deal with a really controversial question many years ago, a question that actually younger people have sort of forgot, which was, is there actually a proven benefit of uh, intensive blood glucose control in patients who have diabetes? And if there is, what actually is that benefit? And so the design of the trial was to intensify blood glucose, blood glucose control in a subgroup and then look at the outcomes, primarily in terms of retinal uh, health, but also many of the other complications in terms of um, peripheral vascular issues, neuropathy, and also uh, in terms of kidneys, and then compare that safety in terms of rates of hypoglycemia and really anything else that might have been identified. Um, and then again, they were followed for an average of about seven years to see what happened. The general sort of results were that in the intensive group, they were able to actually get an average hemoglobin A1C over all of those years of about seven, which is actually stunning if you kind of think about it. Uh, as opposed to the conventional group, which were an average of about nine, so they had a two percentage point difference, and they just saw huge reductions in microvascular complications, stunning reductions in both retinal problems and in early kidney problems and in peripheral neuropathy of more than 50 plus percent for all of those over the six to seven years of the trial. Excellent. Uh, that does help frame out uh, the uh, the trial design. Uh, so you clearly reference the the outstanding benefit that we saw in microvascular uh, disease uh, in the order of 50, 60, almost 70 percent reduction. Uh, in that benefit, uh, we did see that it did, did come at some degree of cost uh, as it relates to uh, particularly hypoglycemia and weight. So what was seen back then was a three-fold higher rate of serious hypoglycemia and admissions to the hospital for hypoglycemia versus the control group. What was not predicted and actually was a big shocker is that there also came with a substantial risk of weight gain. And again, if you go to the original trial, the New England Journal paper, and just kind of quickly read, what you will see is that there was on average about a five-pound weight gain. So remember, this is about a six to seven-year trial in the conventionally treated patients as opposed to about a 10-pound weight gain or thereabouts in the intensively treated patients. So when you first read that, I think you could sort of say, oh, well, you know, it's there, but it's not stunningly huge. 
So even though it was there, it was reported as an outcome, I don't think people uh, initially sort of appreciated that this is kind of much of an issue. And then um, starting two years later, lots and lots of subgroup analyses, different kinds of papers take this huge database and start to analyze it. And there was a paper published a couple of years later, which I think really um, put this into a capsule that we had not anticipated. And that was they started to look at the weight gain in the patient population in quartiles. And so there was a quartile of people who didn't gain any weight. So they were, you know, they were fine with the intensive therapy. And then the opposite quartile, the average weight gain was very, very substantial. I can't remember the exact number, but probably about 20 pounds on average. And actually, when you went to that quartile, not only were they gaining weight, they were uh, also having manifestations of many of the metabolic issues we sort of link to um, weight gain, such as um, blood pressure increases, such as more of a metabolic lipid profile. And for the first time, I think people's eyes opened up to realize, well, wow, there maybe is some overlap between the metabolic background that we then had typically linked really only to type 2 diabetes, that maybe in some patients with type 1 diabetes, there's actually a similar kind of predisposition which might be brought out through intensive insulin therapy. And now we again move into today's world. And that's a huge topic of conversation now because our teenagers and young people with type 1 diabetes are getting bigger and bigger and, and are having more of the metabolic sequelae that one sort of thinks about with obesity and insulin resistance. It's not unique to type 2. We're seeing it more and more in type 1 diabetes. So, so that's the other issue with weight. It's really uh, emerged years after the trial to recognize this is a major you know, risk of people who are on intensive insulin therapy if they have if they have the genetic predisposition to be at risk for that. I, I can't help but uh, uh, just uh, have you comment, if you would, uh, around uh, the uh, type 2 diabetic patient. Uh, this is a majority of uh, new onset diabetes uh, is type 2. Uh, this was a landmark trial. Can we glean anything as it relates to that even larger population as it relates to micro or macrovascular uh, from DCCT or EDIC? So the, the wonderful way to answer that is more or less, more or less, everything I just said can uh, be applied to type 2 diabetes as long as you're willing to be a little creative in terms of lining up the similarities. So as soon as the DCCT came out, and again, that was a New England Journal paper in 1993, I think the results were so widely and stunningly accepted that um, intensive blood glucose control as possible that many years ago was viewed as now the standard of care for type 1 diabetes. Fine. Uh, but immediately the question became, does this have any relevance to type 2 diabetes? Because, of course, the vast, vast, vast majority of patients around uh, the world have type 2 diabetes. And also, uh, you know, we didn't use insulin quite the way for type 2 diabetes then that we do now. So we didn't quite think about intensive therapy um, the same way for type 2 diabetes we did for type 1 and then, of course, in older folks, there is always fear about additional risks of hypoglycemia uh, in terms of what that might mean for cardiovascular risks on and on. So it turns out we, 
um, asked, does it work in type 2? And then five years later in 1998 was the publication of the famous UKPDS, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, that was not actually perfectly analogous to the DCCT. It was a little bit of a different trial. But it was looking at first drug therapy and type 2 diabetes in people who were very, very early in the course of the disease, looking at um, an attained hemoglobin A1C with an intensive therapy of 7 versus about 8 and people with conventional therapy. So not quite the same delta that we had in type 2, but with very similar results which showed a relationship between intensive blood glucose control and prevention against microvascular complications in type 2 diabetes no clear prevention of macrovascular, although that's a very, very complicated subject. Uh, one group took metformin, and maybe metformin showed some cardiovascular protection. That's open to a bit of debate. Uh, and there was a reduction in myocardial infarction in this trial in absolute terms, but not statistical terms. And so, again, we were sort of left with, well, intensive blood glucose control seems to be good also in type 2 um, for microvascular. And then the UKPDS did exactly what the DCCT did, which is to basically wait about another eight to nine years. Again, the trial was finished. People were, you know, let out of it. Their A1Cs normalized in the intensive group versus the control groups. Uh, everything else normalized, including blood pressure. And then they were actually studied uh, eight or nine years later with the same finding which was continued now proven protection against cardiovascular disease in the people who had had the A1Cs that were intensively controlled versus those who hadn't. Um, same molecular mimicry. And actually, one of the things that gets lost in this conversation is if you read the original UKPDS, what you took away from that is that blood pressure was a better control target than A1C because blood pressure at the during the trial did actually seem to confer some cardiovascular benefits while um, blood glucose control didn't really. But at the end of the of the continuation phase, that eight years later, when A1C had normalized and blood pressure had normalized, the cardiovascular protection lingered despite A1Cs coming together, but but the blood pressure related ones didn't. So if there, is, if there is a benefit of intensive blood pressure control in diabetes, you need to keep it controlled. There isn't this sort of long-term memory. And then as a final closing of the loop, there's actually another trial. We talk a lot about something called the Steno2 trial, which is a, a small trial of taking people in Scandinavia and trying to intensively control not just their blood glucose, but blood pressure and lipids. And at the end of that trial, there was pretty good cardiovascular protection, but then everything was stopped, and they were studied an average of seven or eight years later, and they still had this lingering cardiovascular benefit. So this whole idea of mimicry, or at least this uh, sort of molecular protection, uh, is, has been shown not just in type 1 diabetes, but type 2 diabetes. It seemed to be a biological fact. Well, Jack, I really want to thank you uh, for 
reviewing the DCCT trials, its primary endpoints, its uh, secondary endpoints, uh, the EDIC study, uh, and really giving us the context uh, of those uh, studies as it relates to the type 2 diabetic patient in that review. Uh, and these are landmark trials that have absolutely set the standard of care as it relates to the goals of treatment, as it relates to how we monitor patients over time, and to help us all be grounded in fact uh, and not fiction, but fact as to what expectations we can get from uh, that uh, type of control. Uh, these trials, uh, th this trial, the DCCT, uh, and the observation period set the standard uh, that has been, as you just articulated, uh, emulated by other trials, uh, and clearly uh, in its 30th anniversary is still holding the test for time. Uh, what I'd like to do is wrap it up right now uh, and refer uh, our listeners to betacellsindiabetes.org uh, for additional information. Uh, and uh, at this point, again, one final thank you for uh, Dr. Leahy and an eloquent review of the trial. Uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, Dr. Leahy. Thank you very much.